Alright, you were listening to Into the Absurd, episode number 11 with Andy Johnson. He's a physics student at the University of Idaho, so we're going to get into some topics that might be a little advanced, but they're going to be fun. So, what's going on, Andy? Thank you for having me, Greg. Not a lot, just right now, just a lot of schoolwork. I mean, as you know, like, especially with... I mean, so COVID's kind of screwing us up right now, you know? It's like, especially with all the classes that we're taking, I'd much rather be in person than online. I'm very lucky, though, because this semester I got two in-person classes and the rest are online, but it's like I'm still going to campus every day instead of just sitting in my apartment for five days in a row, you know? So it's good to actually have, like, some social contact now. It's good. (laughs) I think, uh, who was it? I think it was Shakespeare who wrote most of his plays during the plague right yeah yeah i heard about that i don't know if that i mean i've never really like looked into the biography of shakespeare but that's what i heard too which i mean like makes sense right you don't have a whole lot else to do rather than just like use your brain and write down a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) make history you know change theater forever yeah well he also changed the english language forever yeah i think he invented what uh 10,000 words or somewhat. Oh, did he really? Yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Someone can fact check <laughs> I, us I, on that, but... I'd believe that, though, because, I mean, like, his his plays became so prolific, right? It's like, I definitely understand that people, like, would pick up what they're saying in the plays and use it in their everyday speech. I mean, we do that with movie quotes all the time mm-hmm. now. So imagine back then when there was only, like, one person making movies, and those were all that you saw. It's like, it makes sense why those would, like, the language in that would become part of our language. Yeah. So this is a bit of a diversion from Shakespeare, <laughs> but so so Isaac Newton he invented calculus, but well, really he didn't, right? Yeah, well I, I I I stay away from saying the phrase we invented math because I don't think we invented math. I think math was discovered, and this is I think probably a really good topic to get into now. Yeah, was it discovered yeah. or did we um, like is the universe mathematical in nature or did we invent math? Yeah. And, and this is a topic I've, I've discussed with a lot of people. I've discussed it with physics professors, math professors, um, biology students, and then my girlfriend and everyone. I always bring this up to because I want to know what they say. And the biggest argument back against it, saying the biggest argument for we invented it, is, well, we invented like one and two and like the number system, you know? And I say, yeah, we invented the notation for it, right? It's like when I, when I write down the number one on a piece of paper, that is a uniquely human thing. That is something that we have done. We have agreed that this number one on the paper is one. It's just like language. We invented the notation for our language. But the consequences of writing down these numbers, I don't think is something that we invented, right? Because we say one plus one equals two. Well, one plus one always equaled two. We just had to find it. We just had to look at the numbers Mm -hmm. and put them together and say that they equaled two. Now the words, the notation and all that, that is uniquely human. But I think all the other consequences of math were discovered, not invented. So I think Newton, to get back to your question, I think Newton discovered calculus after playing around with it. It was already there. He just needed to, he just needed a way to notate it, to write it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think uh, what adds on to that point is that there was another... Uh, physicist i think was it levinitz or leibniz yeah leibniz was he the other guy who, who yeah. discovered calculus yeah so newton and leibniz pretty much at the same time independently of one another were discovering calculus at the same time and um 
the notation that we use in calculus, the derivatives, integrals, um, all that stuff, that is mainly Leibniz notation. There is some Newton notation, but Newton, um, in his book that he wrote, The Principia de Mathematica, which is like the book that introduced physics to the world, I'm uh, sorry, that introduced calculus to the world, that, um, that book was pretty much a stream of consciousness. It was very difficult to read. And even like to this day, it, well, one, it was written hundreds of years ago. So it's old English, you know, um, but it was just hard to follow along. He's using all this weird notation that just kind of pops out of the blue. He doesn't explain it at all. And Leibniz was a lot more like concise and concise and clear. And, uh, people just were, there were, it was easier to read Leibniz, but technically Newton did discover it first, but only by a couple of years. So Newton was on, he was, he was in some other realm when he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually I think that also happened during the plague too. Um, he, Newton, when he was discovering calculus was in his home in like, uh, which was on a countryside. It was this little, uh, almost like pretty much the, um, their equivalent of cement house. Mm -hmm. Um, very small. And he was sitting in his room, which is, um, I don't know, maybe like a third the size of this room. And he just sat at his desk for years and just was writing all this down. And that was also when he started to discover optics because, um, his window wasn't really a window. It was a slit in the wall, like what you would see in a castle. Right. Um, and it was just coming in and refracting off of like the metal in his room or any of the glass hardware that he had in there. Um, and it would split off into different colors. So he was like, oh, this is interesting. Why is it doing this? And so he started to look into that. And it all happened in that one room, this little like 10 by 10 space is where this man changed pretty much the world forever. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to think, right? Yeah. I mean, I think isolation is an important thing to have in one's life in order to have these creative ideas such as discovering rainbows well discovering why rainbows exist right? yeah and then taking that knowledge to uh, let us know later on at least uh why the universe is expanding yeah yeah exactly it's like the same math discovered 400 years ago is the stuff that we're still using now and that's why uh, that's another argument that i use for why i believe that math was discovered not create not invented because inventions don't always work right it's like i can invent uh like my i could have been the guy who invented a coffee maker right mm -hmm. but that wouldn't have like an impact like 400 years down the road maybe but it's like even if society is completely destroyed and all of the books are wiped away the next generation of whatever life form is on earth or maybe on a different planet we'll still find the same sciences. We'll still find the same truths in mathematics. We were just the ones to do it first on our planet. You know, there might be another civilization out there that has discovered it, but you know, we don't know that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was, uh, the, the Aztecs who discovered the concept of zero. Yeah. Yeah. It actually was a, that, that's an interesting point. It was a surprisingly long amount of time before zero came into play in the world. And, because, like, try to explain that to someone. I mean, it makes sense now in our society because we've been using zero for so long. We were born with the notion of zero. It was easy for us to pick it up. But you're with these people, and it's like, okay, show me zero cows, you know? It's like, well, clearly I can show you zero cows because I don't have zero here. But it's like, how do I formalize that and bring that into mm. the, um, the accounting that they did? Because that's really how math was brought into society is because farmers, when they were, like, when villages were producing food, they needed to trade with other villages and they needed some sort of system for accounting for the quantities that they were selling and that's where math really kind of came into play but it's like why would you ever use zero there you know it's like why would i ever use zero bundles of barley you know so 
And then we came up with measurements, measuring lengths and uh, depths and volumes. And then I think all that really came into play when we, because um, during the time of the Greeks, that's when a lot of our mathematical theories ca just came into existence, at least, right? Well, what do you mean? Like Pythagoras. Yeah, yeah. He was the one to start, like, saying that. Um, yeah, and the... It's an interesting point you bring up too with like measurement and stuff like that because the whole point of measurement is to kind of take the human element out of it. It's like, yeah, humans are still making the measurement, so there's always going to be like inherent human interaction there. But, you know, humans are inherently like, it's easy for our senses to get deceived, you know? Like in, in chemistry, there's uh, an effect called the parallax effect. And it's actually not just in chemistry. It's in a lot of places, but it's seen mainly in chemistry where if you have a beaker and you fill it with some fluid the air pressure will push down on top of the surface of the liquid and it'll cause this little like bowl shape to come to the top of it. And that's called a meniscus. And then the way to truly measure that is you have to read at eye level, the bottom of the meniscus, wherever that reads, that's how much volume of stuff that you have. Mm -hmm. But if I look at it from a different angle, it could look as though the meniscus has either raised or lowered. So it can throw off the amount of like material that I'm going to write down on my lab report. And then that can mess me up later, you know? So measurements and tools kind of try to take the human element out of that, where it's like, okay, I have a scale and I put a 50 pound thing on the scale and the scale tells me it's 50 pounds. I don't say it's 50 pounds because truly like you could pick something up. And I mean you, because you, you've, you're, you're pretty strong. You, you probably have a better idea of what 50 pounds is than I do. So it's like, you could pick something up and say, oh, this is probably 50 pounds. But the, the tool will tell us specifically, like, no, this is 50 pounds. It takes the human element out of that. So we can make more precise like measurements and then we can use that later when doing pretty much anything else do you think our so do you think over time we will get better at measuring things oh yeah well i mean we already have right i mean what did we use before uh the furlong which was a unit of measurement that the I think it was the Egyptians. The furlong. Used. Yeah, the furlong. It was the length of a man's forearm, right? Mm. It's like, that's a very, like, non-precise unit of measurement, right? Because everyone's forearm is a different length, you know? I mean, it's in general maybe about, like, a foot. If you're really tall, maybe, like, a foot and a half or something like that. Yeah, yeah. but it's different for everyone, right? Mm. So we went from there to now we have a standardized ruler that we use. At least in the United States, we have the foot, you know? Um, but even when we buy... This is actually a whole branch of science called instrumental analysis, really understanding how precise a, uh, an instrument can measure. Because Instrumental I mean, analysis. Yeah, you're analyzing the instruments that you use, which is, it sounds kind of stupid, right? But it's really important, especially with chemistry, when it comes to producing pharmaceutical drugs, right? If you get the wrong ratio of things mixed, you can kill someone. It's a, it's, it is a very important thing. And when I'm analyzing something, say we get like a meteor lands on earth, we need to know that the instrument will be giving us an accurate reading on whatever it is, because that can completely change how we interpret the universe. It's, it's a very important thing, but it's one of those things that you just don't really think about or you hear about. It's like, oh, why would I spend time analyzing my instrument? But well, why wouldn't you? Exactly. But I mean, like we normally wouldn't because most people <laughs> in day to day, they don't need to know why an IR spectrometer is like how how accurate is that you know mm -hmm. but it's like with people who are actually doing the studies they need to know that stuff because that really can affect their um progress so didn't um so with einstein's theory of relativity that allows us to 
have more accurate GPSs, right? Because we yeah. know that, uh, what is it? Time moves slower. Yeah. So there's relativity is a very interesting phenomena and I'm, I'm just starting to learn about it. Like really, cause I mean, everyone hears about relativity through popular media, right? Like yeah. everyone knows that Einstein did general relativity, but no one knows what general relativity actually is. Right. Yeah. We just know that that's one of the things. Cause everyone knows the phrase like, Oh, you're an Einstein or whatever. But yeah, relativity tells us a couple different things, and depending on how you're looking at it. Everything's right? relative, is that what that means? They, which is funny, it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a really stupid thing to hear, and even I still hate hearing that, but it's absolutely true. Everything is relative, but it's also just like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> but um, there's one concept called uh, time dilation, where uh, pretty much it, what it says is anything that moves experiences time slower at a different... Um, like to an outside observer. And one really good explanation of this that I still will go to when I'm trying to explain to someone of this is in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. When that came out, um, there's a scene where Eggman shoots all of these rockets at him. Well, Sonic like pretty much pauses time and he starts running around and he starts playing like the drums on these uh, uh, missiles because he's moving so fast that to him, time is essentially stopped. But to everyone else looking at him, time is going its normal speed, but he's just moving incredibly fast. That's what time dilation is. So if I start shooting on a rocket ship away, going near the speed of light, to me, the universe will go by slower. Everything will be dilated. But to you, looking at me, you'd be like, wow, Andy's going the speed of light. Like, that's pretty cool. So that's, that's one thing that relativity says. And back to your question about GPS, another thing that relativity tells us is that gravity also affects time, which is essentially like wherever there's stronger gravity, time will move slower, I believe. Um, this is one that I'm a little more fuzzy on because I haven't looked too far into it, but it's essentially like, even if I'm in a home, a clock on a first on the first floor will run slower than the clock on the second floor. But I mean, really, we're not gonna notice that because it's such a minute, like infinitesimal amount of time that it's dilated by, but it's real. It's there, it is relative, and this happens everywhere. So yeah, with GPSs who are hovering thousands of miles above the Earth, they're gonna experience a lot less gravity than us down here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And that difference is more noticeable in the long run. You know, if they've been up for 20 years, their clock is gonna be running different than our clock. So we have to constantly send them signals to reset their clock pretty much to make sure that we're all on the same time because the time can also really affect your GPS, right? It could also be like, hey, it's going to take you five hours to get to this place where it's actually maybe 10 minutes away. You don't actually know. Mm. So, yeah, Einstein's relativity has helped in that regard. It also requires, um, it needs to have accurate time in order to know where your location is too, right? Yeah, exactly. Because if I'm really, if it's six o'clock in Idaho, but the, but the, satellite doesn't know what time or where i really am it could say oh well maybe it's 12 o'clock in new zealand you know like mm -hmm. that could throw you off i mean there's a lot of other factors that go into gps that has also like helped it too but relativity is one of the things that when gps was kind of being well i mean gps was developed after uh einstein right because einstein did it in yeah. like the 40s and we didn't really have satellites then um but it's one of the things that we didn't really put the pieces mm -hmm. together until we started to see like a difference. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, there's even um, an experiment that they did. They took an atomic clock, just like an incredibly precise tool mm -hmm. <laughs> for measurement of time. There's another reason why we need instrumental analysis. Um, and they put it 
on a plane with this guy and flew him to New Zealand and then had one guy in London. Uh, I think those are the places I might get, be getting that mix up. That's not important. Um, he had the same atomic clock, but like at another time. And when the guy landed in New Zealand, because when you're flying in a plane, you're higher up there, time's going a little mm. bit faster than us down there. His was about, I think it was like a hundredth of a second faster, which isn't a lot, but that proves that relativity is real. Like it's there it, and it's, it's a measurable effect. Did they have the same clock? Not like the same physical clock, like but they the have the same design. Yeah, and the the way that those work is that there's a little um, crystal of cesium in there, which is just this metal, and the cesium atom vibrates at a very specific mm. frequency, at a frequency that's specific to that, and that's actually how we have defined the second. It's some ridiculous amount of vibrations, like ten to the twenty third vibration, so incredibly fast. But our instruments now are so sensitive that they can pick that up. Um, wow. But I mean. Time dilation doesn't just affect a clock, it affects everything, all the matter with it too, including the vibrations of a cesium atom. So if you put it on a plane and send that around the world, even the cesium atom will be vibrating a little bit faster. Yeah, it's this crazy, uh, crazy idea, but it's real and it's measurable and we've been measuring it for 50 years. So what frequency is your brain vibrating at right now? Oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of vibrations that happen and like at that scale it's like well i mean you have like macro scale like classical vibrations like if i move my head left to right like this at like one like cycle per second then it's a frequency of one hertz you know like one thing per second but it's like the frequency at which my neurons are firing are, are much faster right well the neurons fire with electrons and electrons exist in this weird state where they're both kind of like real and not real and they flutter between that even faster so it's like that's a hard question and i unnecessarily analyzed that but <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's crazy how every single thing that you see in this room on the atomic level is vibrating at an unbeknownst yeah an unimaginable speed yeah, and I mean, one of the other vibrations and one of my favorite descriptions of it is heat, right? Heat, when we think of heat energy, like what is heat when we're talking about like a physical sense? Well, if I have a cup of hot water and it's hot, right? That just means that the little water molecules are moving around really fast. They're jiggling, they're vibrating super quick. So when you really think of temperature and I ask someone, oh, how hot is this thing? I'm really asking how jiggly is this material? And I could essentially just ask like, oh, how jiggly is this cup of coffee? And I could be like, oh, it's about 90 degrees. You know, like yeah. that's, a, that's a fair question and answer. Do you think it's possible that um, on the atomic level, some uh, that we could apply Einstein's theory of relativity to quantum physics? Well, that's what they try to do, but that's, that's kind of the... Um, that's one of the big questions right now. And if, if I had an answer for that, I'd, I'd be winning a Nobel Prize. Because one of the goals in physics, obviously, is to create the grand theory of everything. One big unified theory. But there's so many different branches of physics. We have classical mechanics, which deals with what we deal with in the real world. When I drop a ball off of my desk, that's classical mechanics. But then when I zoom down onto the really, really small scale... That's quantum mechanics, and they play by two very different rules. And that's why it was so bizarre when we found out about quantum mechanics. It's like, oh, how come this world, this subatomic world that makes up the macroatomic world, like our macro universe, that plays out a completely different like set of rules than what that does. And general relativity is another branch of study with that, but there's no connected link between all of them yet. There, there isn't um, 
one solid theory. There's actually, what they're trying to find right now is the theory of quantum gravity. That is the link between quantum mechanics and relativity, because like I said earlier, relativity can also depend on gravity, and gravity is a really weird thing. Um, but this quantum gravity is like, how can we quantify gravity? What does gravity exist at on the smallest possible scales? Because if there's gravity on the smallest scales, then re relativity will apply. But so far what we're finding is that there's not gravity on the smallest scales. We don't know how to quantify it. And that's just one of the problems that we have right now. One of the things that we should be looking into, you know? Because I was thinking if these, um, this is just a thought. I mean, <laughs> it's wrong. It's a wrong thought. But I was just thinking if these atoms are moving extremely fast, like they're vibrating extremely fast, doesn't that mean that time would be slower for them? Oh, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. Well, I mean, so movement <laughs> movement is relative, right? Yeah. That's how we have to define it. Because I can say something is moving at 50 miles per hour mm. relative to what? How can, I quantify rel how can I quantify how fast it's going? And what's really weird when you think about it is you, as an observer, you are your own reference frame. You go mm -hmm. through life, and we're human, so the world has said, like, w we've evolved that when I walk through this room, you know, my body knows I'm walking through the room. But really, your reference frame is not moving. The world is moving around you. It's relative to that. But if I'm standing on a sidewalk and I see a car go past me at 50 miles an hour, to me, the car is moving 50 miles an hour away from me. But if I'm in the car and I drive past the guy on the sidewalk, the guy is moving 50 miles per hour relative to me. It's dependent on the frame. Mm, isn't um, the speed of light also relative? Like if... Ooh, that's a good question. If, for instance, right here, I were to shine a flash night, it would go at uh, 3 million meters per second, right? But if I were to um, be moving at the speed of light and then I shine my flashlight, would my flashlight then be moving at 3 million meters per second relative to my speed? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so light moves at 300 300 million so like even more million. yeah three okay. times ten well it's really like 2.99 something but it's essentially wow. three times ten to the eighth which is 300 yeah it's fast and the to answer your question yes it will always move that fast and that's one of the consequences of relativity that's what einstein discovered mm -hmm. that the universe will always make sure that the speed of light stays constant it will mm -hmm. never slow down and it will never speed up and there's some really wacky consequences because of that but yeah, no matter what reference frame you are in, and no matter how fast you're moving, light will always be the same. Yeah, so I guess that's uh, why a lot of observations of the universe probably aren't, well, they definitely aren't time accurate. You know, we're not seeing... Well, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, what I mean is, uh, you know, like you look out on a star, and if it's 100 light years away, then we're seeing what it looked like 100 years ago. Right? Yeah, yeah. But if that star were to be moving away from us, then it would, what, like the red shifts and blue shifts? That's, yeah, and that's what I was going to talk about. So, yes, the speed of light will stay the same, but the energy of light can change. And so what Greg just said was this concept called, well, that's really the Doppler effect. Yeah, um, the Doppler effect. Yeah, it's just a, the Doppler effect is a very generalized, uh, it's a very general concept, and then red shift and blue shift is a consequence of that. And so the Doppler effect, as you know, it's like if I hear, if I'm standing on a sidewalk and there's a police siren coming at me, I'll hear it as like this high frequency, like it'll just be a higher pitch. And then the second that it goes past me and starts going away from me, it'll drop its pitch and now it's a little, yeah. Same thing will happen with light. 
because light is also a wave, just like sound waves. So it follows this Doppler effect. And if something's moving away from us, then it'll drop in frequency, just like it'll drop mm -hmm. in sound. If it, because if the wave of light stretches out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then it shifts red. Yeah. And so on the color spectrum, to our visible eyes, red is at a lower frequency than blue is. Um, or I guess violet, technically. So violet's at like a higher frequency and red is a lower frequency. So to contrast that, if the star or a galaxy were moving closer to us, it would be blue shifted because it'd be a higher frequency from where it mm. normally is. And this is another fun thing about relativity. This still happens at our scale. You and me talking here, if I move my hand closer to you, my hand has a blue shift, but it's so minute and imperceptible that we just don't see it, you know? And it's actually like, there's this, there's this joke that if, I don't know the actual speed, but it's like, oh, if you ever want to run a red light, you just need to be going like 16 million meters per second so that the, so that the, red light blue shifts to green and then you can just run <laughs> past it because you're like no officer to me it was it was green relative to my speed yeah and then i uh someone posted that on twitter and a police department like responded they said don't do this <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah so so what would you do if you could meet sir isaac newton oh i don't i don't know would i, you, I <laughs> or do you think it'd be too stinky uh, well, it'd definitely be too stinky. But I, I feel like Isaac Newton wasn't very a socialite. Like, he didn't... Um, I don't think he really was a person who was ha fun to have a conversation with. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, Sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think at that time... Well, if I were to go talk to Newton with everything that I know now, I would blow his mind, you know? Because math and physics has progressed yeah. so much past the point of Newton. Because Newton really worked on classical physics. And only... Um, up to a certain point, you know, because mm -hmm. I mean, he was one dude back in the day, you know, he didn't have that much time to discover everything pretty much. Right. So I can go back and talk to him about even more advanced mechanics and blow his mind. But I still don't even think that, um, I think it'd be a hard conversation to have with him about just like even him, because to him, he just discovered this new thing and people were very hesitant to pick it up for a while. You know, like it wasn't just like, he didn't just release the Principle de Mathematica and then became famous. He became famous posthumously or however you pronounce that word um, after he died. Posthumously. Yeah. Yeah. He became famous after that. So I don't even know if he... There happens to be a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, a Fred lot of mathematicians. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Like Nietzsche, um, pretty much any f philosopher, really. Um, I mean, there are ones that are alive yeah, now. Yeah, they became famous during their time. Well, I'd, uh, I remember seeing this one thing. This uh, this guy said that most philosophers actually became famous before they died. But but the thing is, I feel like there's a lot of people, like the really famous ones, didn't actually become famous until after they died. I mean, yeah, look at Kant, you know? Like, yeah, Kant, Kant is personally my favorite philosopher because he dealt with a lot of metaphysics. Yeah. And metaphysics is, you know, the philosophy of reality. Mm -hmm. And me being a physics student, I feel like I have this natural affinity towards it. So I love Kant and I love what he says. But um, well, even you think about it now, in our day and age, philosophers now have it so easy because they can easily publish a book and it's sent out to the masses, go on social media platforms and talk to people, get their name out there. That didn't exist in Newton's time or Kant's yeah. time. They just had to go pretty much word of mouth mm. until everyone read their book. And then printing was slow back then, you know, getting it published was kind of difficult. Um, 
it was this whole another process. So it's like, yeah, they're like the modern day philosophers that exist right now in this day and age are a lot more famous than the most famous philosophers were in their day and age, you know? Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but there definitely were philosophers who were known when they were alive. Um, I may be butchering this, but I think it was Hume and uh, one of the other uh, political philosophers, but they kept like taking stabs at one another, like wow. through correspondence in... Um, publishing things so like like hume would release something and then this one guy would uh create a response to that but then he would create a response to that response and just kept going on it's like that would only happen if they were already an established philosopher you know so do you think we're also discovering philosophy in a sense yeah now that's kind of an interesting question so um with fit with math at least that's a very specific case but Mm -hmm philosophy is very generalized it's very abstract so i think in a way we kind of are well okay so i really think and this is kind of metaphysical that your um your reality is based on your own experiences and this is a very descartian philosophy so your unique reality how you experience the world is different from mine because we've had our own experiences that lead up to this point you know so that means that we think about things completely differently when i think of a concept it's this abstract form in my mind that i can never fully a 100 percent explain to you purely just because of the limitation of the english language if you could see inside of my mind and know exactly what i was thinking then i would no longer have these unique thoughts these unique experiences at that point you would be me but you're not me so I have my own unique thoughts. So philosophy, I think, is this kind of attempt for us to take these abstracted forms that exist in our mind and try to bring them to light so mm-hmm. other people can see it. I can try to explain relativity to you, but how you think about relativity is different than how I think about relativity, even though we agree on major concepts. And the same thing with calculus. The way that you perceive an integral is different from the way that I perceive an integral. So I'm not, I'm not sure if philosophy is discovered or invented. I think, I think it's, I think it's invented. Yeah. And why is that? Um, because it doesn't, so, or it could be this, I mean, I guess. Yeah. It's just weird. Like, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I'll have to think on that for a while. Can you discover something that is relative? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, or can you discover a subjective truth? Are subjective truths discovered or are they invented? So were they, so it's like, is my opinion of music? Mo- That's more of a question of free will, right? Because... Yeah, um, yeah, 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 it's it's free will. Because yeah. if you don't have so free it's like, will, then they're they're discovered, right? Yeah, exactly. But if I do have free will, then it's invented, right? That's a... I think that's a good point. Um yeah, because like you said, subjectivity. You and me may not like the same music. You know, that's subjective. But is it my choice to not like that music or do I naturally not like that music? Because if I naturally don't like that music, then that's not free will, right? That's just mm-hmm. my own natural affinity. I have no say over that. But if I choose to like that music, well, that's a different thing. That's not, that, that is free will, right? I mean, if I could choose to like mayonnaise, I would. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But... Yeah, so I, I, but I also don't know because, like you said, that's subjective. I can't tell you if that's um, discovered or invented for you because you're your own person. Like you, you have to discover that for yourself. I can't tell you that, you know, because hmm. how, how would I know? I'm not you. I'm me. I have my own. I like mayonnaise, <laughs> but do I choose to like mayonnaise or was it? And I even think, um, I feel like it's a weird mixture, you know. 
I also think, um, cause you brought up earlier that, that inventions are invented and math is discovered, right? But at the same time, you know, they're, we discovered the laws of thermodynamics, right? Right. We didn't, we didn't invent them because we no. didn't create the universe. Right. Yeah. And that's another argument that I use for the discovery of it, right? It's like the laws of thermodynamics qualitatively, like if I'm just saying it verbally, those are just based off of like common sense, right? It's like, okay, yeah. One of the laws of thermodynamics is that hotter temperatures will flow into colder temperatures and not the other way around. It's like, yeah, that makes sense from our intuition of that. But it just so happens that the math that Newton discovered 400 some years ago still works on these new branches of physics that we're discovering today. It's like, if we just invented that, there's no way that it could have like survived to the extent at which it is now, because there's no way that Newton could have seen how far it was going to get us now using so many different applications. We've put people's lives on it with math. One, like you have, um, the math of biology and then you have the chemistry of biology and then that gives pharmaceutical companies right medicine is based in math it's kind of a stretch to say but like it's like biology is based on chemistry chemistry is based on physics physics is based on math right it's this weird like hierarchy um but it's like there's there's no way that newton creating inventing calculus would be able to send us to the moon you know mm. yeah and i mean even like uh, they found that Newton even had, like, his theory of gravitation, there's gravity, and that was wrong. Um, but it was only wrong because he was using the math wrong. They used his same math to get the theory of gravitation that we have now. He just wow. looked at it the wrong way, you know? He just interpreted his own writing the wrong way. <laughs> he did say it was unorganized. Very, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a very difficult read. I've I've tried and I did not get anywhere with it. But Leibniz is very easy to read. Yeah, so. he just stayed in his his ten by ten room for years on yeah, end. Yeah, but that goes back to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago yeah. about like um, concepts exist in this abstract form. He mm -hmm. he knew exactly what he was trying to say. He just didn't do a very good job of writing it down. You know, like it's essentially almost the same thing as like trying to describe like a color to you it's like i don't know if your red is the same as my red i have this concept of red that exists in my head but there's no way that i could possibly describe to you my red you know mm -hmm. he just did his best but he just didn't do a very good job at it well actually he did a very good job at it because people were able to interpret mm -hmm. it to get us where we are but for like the general people who were reading it no no not a good yeah, i guess um language is one of the largest barriers that we have yeah um do you think, so So we discovered mathematics, right? Do you think we'll ever discover something else that we don't even know about yet that will help us measure reality? Well, I mean, that's what discovering is, right? Yeah. It's like, we, we don't know it's there until we discover it, right? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't know, like, PDEs, partial differential equations, we didn't know that those were there until we started looking into the math of it. And then we realized, oh, these things are here, these exist, and these... PDEs, these partial differential equations that were found also perfectly model the universe and how it works. And we can still use these. Like, there's no way that that was just invented and that just so happened to happen. It's like, no, we found that. It was always there hiding in the math. We just had to look at it in the right way. Yeah, I guess um, I think a lot of times with, this, uh, with these mathematical concepts, the notation needs to catch up yeah with us first before yeah. we can even absolutely find out how to do it and that's one of the hardest things about like new mathematicians who are discovering new math right but there's not a notation to put it i mean that's what leibniz and newton 
uh, struggled with, right? Yeah. They, they're like, oh, I have this integral. I'm, I'm trying to talk about the area under the curve of a graph, right? We don't have a notation or a word for it that explains it right now. So I'll just have to make my own and hope that that sticks and hope that by convention, mm. people will use that. Because and, I'll just draw a squiggly line. Exactly. And that's why I say that notation without a doubt is man-made, right? I mean, mm. yeah. uh, for people listening to this, an integral sign is pretty much just a big S. That's that's yeah. what it looks like, right? But I, if I was making it, I could have made it be the sigma sign, you know? I could have made it be literally anything. Yeah, it could be a squiggle. And if it caught on, then that's what people would use. There's a lot of things that... A lot of notation in math is just used by convention, but we don't really need to use it. When I'm talking about like an algebra problem, like 3x equals 7, what is x? x can be anything. I can draw a little picture of an acorn, and it can still be the same question, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know uh, this this homework assignment for, for PDE. Yeah. One of my variables, I just had a smiley face. Yeah. Like, whatever. I, um, <laughs> I, I saw a uh, like a math meme a while ago. It was an ordinary differential equation, not a partial differential equation. Um, and they were trying to solve it using separation of variables. Like, you know, a simple way mm -hmm. to solve it. Uh, but for all of the new, like, variables he needed to bring in, yeah, he used pictures of, like, acorns and trees and cars and houses. And he answered the question and the equation he got. He just wrote all those in. And the teacher wrote on it. He's like, technically, yes. Like, yes, this works. But never do this again because it was horrible <laughs> to read. Which is like, yeah, that makes sense, right? But yeah, it's just notation. It's like, that's just what we agree on. I think if tomorrow we all agreed to use pictures of acorns instead of X's, that's just how it is. So I think uh, with, uh, do you think if, have you heard of Elon Musk's like neural link? I've heard of it, but I don't really know much about it. I haven't looked into it. From my understanding, it's essentially just like uploading your consciousness to the cloud, right? <laughs> is, is that is that what it is? Uh Maybe in the future, in like <laughs> 300 years or something. But right now, it's more so it's uh, it'll be able to simulate parts of your brain. Like, for instance, if you were blind, it would be able to simulate the part of your brain that uh, that allows you to see your, um, I think it's called the the occipital load. No, that's your... I couldn't tell you. I'm not a biologist. Your, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um. But anyways, then it'll allow you to see, right? Okay. Or, or people that have seizures, it'll it'll be able to stimulate that part of your brain that's causing you to have seizures, and it'll control it to cause you not to have seizures. Interesting. So it's making cyborgs, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but hopefully in the future, that'll allow us to eat essentially share our thoughts with other people so there mm. isn't a language barrier you could just completely feel how that other person feels and like understand how they yeah. understand something and that and that's an interesting point right mm. it's like well also if you kind of abstract that a little bit like what from what i understand from what you're saying it's like oh yeah if i can't see the color blue i can put in this little thing that makes me see the color blue or stops me from having seizures or has me do any of this it's like maybe like reinvigorates a sense of smell that you lost you mm. know what if we put enough of those together and simulated a brain? Would it be yeah. would it be its own consciousness at that point, or would it still just be a piece of hardware? Like, uh, we that I think that's an interesting question. Um, but then that also drives into what you said about like transferring thoughts. It's like, what is a thought really? It's like a thought is this, like I said, it's like this abstract form that we have in our mind. Um, 
but our minds are physiological. They exist physically. They follow physical laws, right? It's like my brain is still just a piece of jello, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it follows those laws. But somehow in the like the chaos of all the little neurons firing, I'm able to have an imagination and think, you know? So it's like, how would we send that across, you know? We would just have to send like electrical signals, you know? But mm-hmm. somehow... How do, but how do I know that your electrical signals will work the same as mine? And I mean, there's probably an answer to that in biology that they've looked into. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a biologist. I don't read biology papers. So My only problem with uh, the whole um, sending your thoughts to other people is that it might take away some, uh, some novelty from thinking. Because, you know, when you... Because when I read something and I know that I'm not understanding the concept the same as the person that wrote the book, but I do take it in a certain way where I come up with my own novel idea and then I can write about it in a different way. Yeah. But yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm not, because if sure. I were to understand, um, like for instance, what I just read was uh, fear and trembling, right? What's that? Uh, it's a book by Soren Kierkegaard. It's his, it's his like grand essay about um, the philosophy of faith, essentially. Okay. Um, and I mean, I'm not a Christian, but but he is, and it's a very interesting book. And I kind of took it to mean, oh yeah, you should. Um, the the power of belief is very real. Yeah. If you believe in something, but if he were to put his thoughts into my brain, then all of a sudden I'd probably think of think of it in the same way that he does. And so instead of thinking about it as, oh, belief is powerful, belief's awesome, instead I'd think of it as, oh, I should believe in the Christian God without a well, doubt. Well, at that point, though, it's like if, let's just play with that idea for a mm-hmm. second. So if you had already read the book and then got his thought mm-hmm. on it, it would be a combination of yours and his, right? Yeah. If, if you were just sleeping and I were to put this Neuralink in your head and then just send it to what it is, like cause that kind of like, you know, inception like mm-hmm. idea, um, that would be completely different, you know? I think, I think the novelty would still remain because on top of all your experiences and your personal beliefs and like your thoughts that has brought you to believe whatever it is you believe, then you hear someone else's thought on that. It's essentially the same as just reading another good book, you know? But it's just mm-hmm. a mixture of that and yours. It's like, yeah, now you just understand his point a lot better, but it's still mixed with what you already believe, you know? I think So I think the novelty will still be there. It's, okay. the, it's this objective thing mixed with all your subjective things, and that makes it novel. Hmm. That makes it unique, you know? Cool. Yeah, it's an interesting concept so do you think there'll ever come a time when do you think our brains will ever not even be good enough not even be advanced enough to understand some concepts that's an interesting question and actually one that i was talking to someone about last night um is there something you just can't understand yeah is there something you just can't i don't think so you don't think so no um well okay uh I don't know. So I mean, a chimpanzee can't understand what a pillow is, or do they? But we, I mean, we don't know what a chimpanzee's mind actually is, right? I guess it, they, yeah. I guess they understand a pillow in a different way that we do. Yeah. Well, right. exactly. So it's like whatever world we, we don't exist have language. in. Yeah. Whatever world we exist, like 
think of a fish too. If you if you want to even strip it down to its very basic level, a fish mm -hmm. is almost as basic as we can get. I mean, like mm -hmm. clearly there are microorganisms that have like proto brains and proto nervous systems, and then you can get even further down there. But I mean, like on the macro scale, let's just talk about a fish, right? Mm -hmm. Very basic creature. But they only know the ocean, right? That's all that they see. There's no need for them to think about what's going on on land, right? Because they haven't seen that yet. They haven't interacted with it yet. So there's no reason for their brain to evolve to perceive that, right? But what is a tree? Yeah. <laughs> but I think with us, the only things that we can't understand are things that we don't interact with, right? And if we don't interact with it, is that really part of our reality? Is it, is it really real, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think anything that we can interact with we can understand in time. We may not understand it now, like dark matter. We know it's there. We don't understand it yet, but we know it's there and we know it's real because it interacts with things. It has this interaction with it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there could be like these, um, you know, like four dimensional beings looking down on us, like one in this room, but we wouldn't know because it's not interacting with anything, you know? So how, yeah. how what would that even be real? Like we probably can't understand that, but... So like a being that could go beyond physical reality well i mean yeah like what if you became a like and i guess it's like a thing with ghosts right like but what if you became a ghost or if you want to say that just like this clump of energy that didn't interact with anything you could just go through walls and sit in a room invisible with a bunch of other people hmm. would you be real to them like would they know that you're real you know hmm. that's I mean, kind of like the uh like when you go in front of a slug and then you wave your hand it it has no idea that you're even there well, I think the slug might like, you know, like sense the light difference or something, yeah. but I don't think it'll be like, oh, whatever. It really only, like the slug will only really care if you like touch it, right? Because then it's like, ah, predator, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think humans have kind of like gotten past that point. I mean, we're looking at, at stars that are 13 billion years old, you know? It's mm -hmm. like, uh, we, we've kind of gotten past that point. So I think anything yeah. that really exists in our world, we can understand. Um, I think it's just when we start to talk about like, uh, things outside of this world that we just don't really understand. The fourth dimension. Yeah, exactly. Or anything like that. It's like, we, it, I don't think we can understand that. Mm -hmm. We don't interact with that. Or, I mean, some people say we do. That's that. That's your own personal theory at that point. That's your belief. Yeah. But um, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure if I agree with my own answer. But I think that we can understand anything that we interact with. Okay. It, given time. And if brain power. We can interact with it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, there could be this new type of star or like astral body out in the cosmos that we've never seen before. We've never interacted with it. It could be real, but to us, it's not because we haven't seen it, right? We haven't interacted mm -hmm. with it. We don't know what it is. So it's like, well, clearly, we don't understand that right now. Well, uh, like with dark energy and dark matter, let's say we could never even see it or interact with it or measure it because nothing in this physical universe would allow us yeah. to measure it other than gravity. Yeah. So it's like, right. would it, would it really be there though? It's like yeah. there, there could be a million dark mat, like dark energy things out there that don't interact with us. Mm. So are they real? You know, like, yeah. and how, and if they are real, how can we verify that it's real? Mm. And if there's just one of them, how do we know that there's not two or three or infinitely many of them? Right. Wow. Yeah, we don't know. And how could we know? Yeah, I guess this all kind of ties into epistemology. Do you know what... Yeah, how, the philosophy of how we think. Yeah, just like how do we know what we know? Yeah, yeah. Is I it mean, possible to know? I, I took um, 
Bryce Blankenship's oh, yeah, uh, belief, belief in reality. reality. Yeah. And I, I really liked uh, listening to that uh, podcast that you did with oh, him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he, he brought up a lot of points in there that he also mm-hmm. talked about in class. You know, and I remember even you talking about like Ishmael. And I was like, hey, I read that book. <laughs> it's, it, it's a good book. It is it was a very good book. I loved it. Really changed how I saw a lot of things for a while. But mm. but yeah, like Bryce, um, he gave me an assignment. And he uh, it, was, it, it literally was that question. How do we know what we know? And mm-hmm. so I wrote it down. And he gave it back. And th- to this day, this comment still bugs me because I really don't know how to answer it. He's like, okay, but how do we know this? Like, how do we really know this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how we know, but we know, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's because, uh, like, you don't know for certain that anything exists outside of your own head. Right. And that's, yeah, that's what I believe. Other people would argue that, you know, but that's a very Descartian philosophy. It's like, mm-hmm. to me, my reality is anything that I've like perceived. Yeah, it is, is exactly what you said. Well, that's where belief comes in. You know, there's, there's some things that you can't know for certain, but... Well, yeah, oh, I see where you're getting. With that yeah. said, you just got to believe it. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. So it's like if I, was, if I was born and raised in a single room my entire life and I never saw the outside world, would I believe that there is something outside of this room, you know? And that goes back... You can abstract that a little bit to talk about what I just said a couple of minutes ago about like there could be thousands of dark energies out there, but we don't interact with it. But do we believe that there's something out there? You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, and then you get into your like re- your religion. It's like, well, maybe those forces are a god or something else or whatever. And it's like, well, we really don't know, right? Well, let's find out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, if there isn't belief, because it, if you were to say, yeah, the only thing that I know is that I know nothing at all. Well, well that's a that's something that you know. Yeah, but yeah, that. That's something that you know, so technically you're wrong because you, you might do not know even something. know that. Yeah. You might actually know stuff, you just don't even know that you know things. Yeah. Right? Well, one of my, um, one thing that I like to, uh, one of my theories is kind of about like humans in general is like, you know, so you have like the philosophies of human nature, right? And all of these theories about like these logical systems that humans follow, right? And I don't think any of them are right. To me, personally, my theory is that humans are illogical to like uh, at a certain at a certain level. I mean, clearly we follow some logic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you stab I stab you logically, you're not gonna like that. And I know and I have a pretty good idea how you'd react if I were to stab you. So there's some logic that you follow there, but at a fundamental yeah, uh, or you'd get very mad and stab me back, right? Like I can predict that. But at a certain level, like when you get to a soul or your consciousness, I don't think that that is logical. And clearly that drives what we do like as people, right? I, my consciousness, my thoughts, how I'm having this podcast right now. I don't think that is logical, which is like, so I really say it's like, I don't think that there's a theory, like one true theory mm-hmm. for human nature, but that itself is a theory of human nature, right? Yeah. And I only, the only way that I justify that is like, well, humans are illogical. So of course my argument for that's going to be illogical, right? Like that's a logical, I'm still trying to put a logical uh, argument to human reality, like to human nature, Mm -hmm. but it's stupid to try to prove something that's illogical with logic. It's illogical. You cannot prove it with logic. So of Mm -hmm. course you're going to run into contradictions. Of course you're going to get a lot like illogicalities in there and paradoxes. Like, yeah, it's illogical. <laughs> That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess sometimes you need to put some questions aside so you can move forward and, and tackle some easier questions. Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, 
if we use the example of, oh, yeah, like, I have no idea if anything's real outside of my body, so, like, why would I even question anything else, right? What's the point? Nothing's real. But then you could also say, well, I'm just going to trust that everything is real, and even if it's not yeah. real, I'm just going to work with the reality that I have and exactly and try to figure it out. Yeah, so one, like, uh, consequence of, like, the Descartian philosophy that I personally uh live by it's like so at the end of the day the only thing that you can truly be sure of is yourself your own existence Mm -hmm. even if we don't live in this physical world maybe we live in computer simulation at least i exist in that computer simulation i exist Mm -hmm. somewhere in space in time or whatever and like when i say space i don't just mean like physical space i mean like the abstracted realm of whatever it is we're from you know like mm-hmm. that can be anything. I just choose to believe. Oh, and this is a question. Do I choose to believe this or am I naturally drawn to this that we live in a physical world that's 13.8 billion years old and follows the laws of physics, right? It's like, but where do those laws of physics come from? And then that's a, a whole another story. Yeah. But I believe that the world that I see, I believe you're real, but I don't know if you're real. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't know if your consciousness is real. Otherwise, if I did know, I would be you, but I'm not you. I'm me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like jumping back to that that point because i really believe that and actually that that um philosophy really like i really started to truly internalize that in bryce's class because he kept asking these questions and all these questions i remember he talked to you about the um where's my body yeah. uh that yeah, i love oh i loved that that was a very good um mm-hmm. uh discussion that we had in class and that's where i was really like solid where I, like yeah i believe that like well because one of the things in there um he talks about like his his brain he has his brain his own thoughts but then they back it up into a computer and at a certain point he can like switch between the computer brain and his brain and they're perfectly in sync but at one point Mm. he switches it and they're different you know like he switches it to the computer or whatever and the computer's like oh thank god like now i can finally talk now i'm now i'm not like covered by that person yeah well it's like i i think that in this abstract sense that that computer is its own soul you know like it's it's its own consciousness but it has its own unique experiences Mm. as a computer rather than a biological being that drives it to divert away from him that's that's what i believe or do i believe that or am i drawn to that that's free will that's a yeah there's so there's so many like questions that you can keep going well you believe it but it might not be your choice to believe it How, how do you mean isn't that that's very paradoxical isn't it isn't a belief something that isn't a choice like, well, well, it's like you, why, why do you believe it in the first place? Right. It's because you think it's right. It's like, oh, this explains my objective reality. Right. Something like, that I oh, don't have a choice about. Oh, I get it now. What? No, I mean, that's like the oh. thought that comes oh. your head when you <laughs> yeah. start to believe something. Yeah, exactly. You know? I, I don't know. Uh, that happens to me all the time. I'll, I'll have some thought. I'll be like, oh, wow, that. It all makes sense. And then a few weeks Eureka. later, I'm like, oh, you know, that actually doesn't like really make a whole lot of sense. And then I'll yeah. think about it a little longer and then I'll believe something else. Well, that's right. the, yeah, exactly. But that's the beauty of reflecting upon mm-hmm. a concept. And this is one thing that I think it was Kant who talked a lot about. I don't know. It was one of the famous like fundamental metaphysical philosophers. Mm-hmm. They talked about like um, after every experience that you have, you need to have time to reflect upon it. And that's what builds into your um like your uh 
to your reality. Like one example is like, so you think of like someone who's brain dead in a hospital, right? Their brain doesn't function. They can still like experience external stimuli. Like this is very cruel, but you can still stab a brain dead person. But can they reflect upon that experience? Mm. And I like one of the answers like, no, they can't because they can't think anymore. So they don't like reflect upon that. And so they're no longer creating any more unique experiences, right? So it's like you read the Bible or something and then... The, the second that you finish reading the Bible, now the reflection period starts on it. You've already gotten all the information, but now mm-hmm. it'll start to internalize and sit with you for a while. And then you'll have your own thoughts, whether you're like walking around and then you start, you start to think about it. And this reflection is very important. And the same thing happens with me and math. It's like, I'll learn something one day, but mm-hmm. I might not understand it until three months later. You know, yeah. that happened with my Proust class a lot last semester. The, the stuff that we learned at the very beginning of the class, I didn't understand until the very end of the class because that was just the reflection, like the amount of reflection that I needed to have on that. So it's like any experience you have, you need to reflect upon it. And that's what will build into like your unique character. You know, I know when I took uh, calculus three, you know, it's it's three-dimensional calculus. I started looking at the world in a totally different yeah. way. Oh, yeah. Calc 3 is beautiful. I love it. It's so good. It's Plus, like three-dimensional calculus. I I had no idea that they even had such a thing. Exactly. It's like, but but then after learning it and you reflect upon it, you're like, oh, this makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, of course we need calculus to describe three dimensions because we live in three dimensions, yeah. three spatial dimensions. And it's like oh, this makes a lot of sense. And even then with Calc 3, it's like, yeah, you do learn it in three dimensions, but you can even abstract it farther into higher dimensions. You can do five-dimensional calculus too, you know? It's just this jump between 2D and 3D that's hard. Wow. Yeah. But it's, yeah. Calc 3 is beautiful. It's got some, Talking about notation, Calc 3 has some beautiful notation. Partial derivative symbols, oh, ooh, love them. So to a sense, we almost have to have a faith in that math works right yeah you, that, that and that is that is true because we have to agree on the symbols that we use we have to agree on the notation convention yeah but there are certain things in math that we don't have to agree on at the same time like what do you mean like what's an example well we have to agree on the symbols right right but if we're using the same symbols then you'll get to the same answer no matter what yeah or even if you're using different symbols but you agree that they mean the same thing you'll get to the same thing right mm-hmm. yeah so instead of writing one plus one equals two i could write acorn plus acorn equals apple as long as we both agree that acorn equals one and apple equals two right mm-hmm. as long as we both agree on that we'll arrive at the same yeah yeah and that's why i think it's like that's why i think um that and that's what i said before if society is completely destroyed completely wiped out we're gone the next wave people that come up they'll still find the same thing theirs will just look completely different and that's one of the arguments. It's like, I'll, I think if we find like an intelligent, um, and intelligence is, you know, an interesting term in and of itself. But if we find a society that also has their mm-hmm. form of calculus, it'll look completely different from ours. I guarantee it. There's no, it would be very unlikely if they were also using the Leibniz integral notation to describe yeah. an integral, right? They would have something completely different. We would just have to figure out what they're saying and they would have to figure out what our, what we're saying. But it's the same thing with language, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but also all of our inventions um, and all of our laws of physics, all of our laws of motion, uh, everything has to work with our mathematical system. Yeah, exactly. But um, the way that you kind of phrase that there, it's almost like we have to force them to work with our mathematical system. I think Mm -hmm. they already... They already already do. do, Yeah. You have to discover how they really... Yeah. 
it's like yeah. i i know that like with a coffee maker it, like mm-hmm. it all pretty much came into existence at the same time and i don't know what like the little microchip in there does but i have to just kind of look at how the entire thing works and then i'm like oh, like i could look at the coffee pot too like the mm-hmm. pot of coffee itself is like i'm not sure what this does until i look at the entire picture and then I'm mm-hmm. able to like figure out, like, oh, this is how it fits in here. This is its place. It already existed with the coffee machine. I just have to know how to use it. Same thing with the laws of thermodynamics or something like that. It's like they're already there. We just have to figure out where in math that they really like mm-hmm. fit in. Yeah. Why does my coffee cup go cold? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, well, that's thermodynamics, which can be described through math that mm-hmm. already is there. You know, We just have to figure out how it is. And actually, um, a really funny thing is like one of the biggest um, concepts in quantum mechanics is like the wave function. And I'm not going to get too deep into it, but on the, on the surface level, kind of like popular science explanation of it, it's like, well, everything exists in this like particle wave duality. And I mean, this is really like, it doesn't capture the whole essence. It's just easy to explain this way. Um, but like an electron, an electron is both a particle and a wave. And it's like, well, what does that mean? who knows like it's 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 weird um but the equation that talks about that is a partial differential equation called schrodinger's equation and when schrodinger i love schrodinger and when when he found out about that equation when he discovered it he literally was looking at like a basic um equation in physics i don't remember which one but he just like changed one of the signs on it he he did a basic algebraic trick and because the algebraic trick he was able to follow down all the consequences until he got to the schrodinger equation he discovered it It was always there he was just the one who discovered the little algebraic trick he had to do it could have been anyone else it could have been you it could have been me but he was the one who did it he's the one who discovered it. it was always there we just had to find it for the record, it could not have been me. <laughs> it definitely cannot be me. No. But but he was the one who did it. So Wow. Yeah. Alright, well I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh thanks for coming on. That was awesome. I think there are so many things just with physics that oh yeah. For, we, for one, people should know. Yeah. And for two, just the the ethical applications, but also the epistemological applications of physics. Yeah, and the, and me- and the metaphysical like interpretations of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. like what, what does physics really say about our universe and how we exist? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And uh, for you out there, if you want to make any suggestions for people to come on the podcast or even uh, just things for me to research, um, just email into.v.absurd at... Oh, Mess that up. Into.the.absurd.podcast at gmail.com. All right, there you go.